Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Casella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith. We are running back and forth all day today between the State House and the very warm pod bunker where we are right now. Uh, why is that, Steve? We're getting the governor's budget today, uh, which is where he lays out all the things that he wants to spend money on, what new fees or taxes might go to fund them, and just uh, sort of starts the whole process rolling on on the back and forth over the budget. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit later with Katie Lannon, our beloved BFF of the pod. But Steve, it was very important in the governor's state of the state last night. He said that he was going to spend more money fixing the tea. We know that you of all people have strong feelings about the tea, but do you, can you even find hope in your heart now? See, I, based on our polling, I don't think it's me of all people. <laughs> I think it's you me and all people. Many um, are sort of exhausted with whatever your mode of transportation is. You know, people are exhausted with traffic. People are exhausted with the tea. Um, so the governor said in his speech last night that he was dedicating $135 million more million to MBTA operations. That number sounds like a lot. Um, it also happens to match an amount that he'd been removing from operations these last few years to spend in, instead on capital. So exactly what the details are and how, how far that and toward what end that $135 million goes will be very interesting to see when the details come out. Especially with the always present giant question mark about is it just about adding in more money because we just keep hearing that they can't spend it fast enough. So We'll see. We'll see where that goes. And we'll, I'm sure, talk about it later. But, uh, Steve, something else might be exhausting you, delighting you. Polling? Polling are, delights Are me. there polls? <laughs> Polling is always delightful, never but, exhausting. But the New York Times, in their endorsement, said that modern polling is dead. <laughs> I think in tatters, technically. In which, tatters. Um, I took some Dying. exception to. Uh, no, they did. They said that in the in their endorsement of Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, um, they mentioned modern polling being in tatters as I think a suggestion that we couldn't know where the race really is. I mean, the truth of the matter is about polling. It didn't used to be as good as we remember it. And it's not as bad as people think it is now. At least through 2018, it was as good and as accurate about as it has always been. Um, there is this hangover, I think, that readers and observers have from 2016, where all these expectations were built up based on some state polls in swing states that were reinforced by the modelers and the aggregators and the people trying to predict where the election is going to end up. And that left people thinking polling is terrible. It is suddenly broken. It is not suddenly broken. But, you know, they're right about one thing, which is that – or they're right in, in a sense, which is that every election is a new opportunity to, to prove that you either know what you're doing or that polling really does have problems. And, of course, the reason that we're bringing this up is not just to give Steve an opportunity to defend polling as an entire topic, but also because there are some new polls that you folks have been doing. And we're going to start with our brand, which is horse race polling. And so a brief defense of horse race polling here, guys. <laughs> you don't need to vote based on the poll. It just tells you how people are thinking about voting. And I have faith in all of you to have a little bit more backbone than sheep. So we're going to talk about who's ahead in New Hampshire right now and take that with whatever grain of salt you want. That's right. So this podcast is actually recorded on Wednesday, but we held it for an extra day because there's a WBUR poll out um, on Thursday morning. So in the future when we're recording this. Slash right now when you're hearing this, as usual, what is time? It's, it's just a flat circle. <laughs> Um, no, seriously. And it's of New Hampshire Democratic primary voters. So this is uh, voters, both Democrats and independents, who say they're going to participate in the, in the primary in New Hampshire. And we find Bernie Sanders has taken a big lead. New Hampshire, feeling the burn. Feeling the burn. I know. Bernie Sanders did very well in 2016. So if he's going to do well, if he, 
throughout the primary process, New Hampshire will be a good indication of uh, sort of that that's where things are going. And it is his neighbor's state, too. So that's that's nice that they're coming out. Yes. Uh, so he won big in 2016. And in this poll, we find him with 29 percent of the likely Democratic primary vote. Um, the next closest is Mayor Pete Buttigieg with 17 percent. Interesting. Yeah. So Sanders has a 12-point lead. Wow. Um, last time we did this poll back in, um, in December, we found a pretty tight cluster up at the top. Then we found um, Biden, Buttigieg, and Sanders all clustered in sort of the 15 to 18 percent range. Everybody else has kind of stayed where they were. Warren stayed roughly level, Buttigieg, Biden, others. Um, But Sanders has gathered a little bit from each of them um, and some from the undecided and jumped up to 28 percent. So what is the top four right now? So we've got Bernie way out front and then Buttigieg after him, Biden and Warren. Where are they hanging out? Yeah, so Buttigieg 18, uh, Biden 17, and um, Warren 12. Uh, So Warren is fourth of the four, but she and Buttigieg and Biden are, are sort of close to each other, and then Sanders is far ahead at this moment. Yeah, the Warren thing is interesting um, in the context of the Boston Globe poll from earlier this week, which was talking about some softening of Warren's support. And uh, the thing that was striking there was it was of the uh, voters that they polled, it was only 4% of men supported Elizabeth Warren. So that was an, an interesting note that I'm just going to leave out there. Yeah, we found that her both her favorables and unfavorables have gone up somewhat. So this is natural throughout the primary process where voters get to know a candidate. A few more say they like a candidate. A few more say they don't like a candidate. That's, that's how things have unfolded for Elizabeth Warren. So I'd say it's almost not that her support has softened, at least in our polling between December and now. It's that it stayed steady and Sanders has grabbed a point from here, a point from there, a point from candidates who have dropped out, some points from undecided and, and taken a lead. The thing that we'll need to keep an eye on is that it's still early, oddly enough, even though we're only a few weeks out. This is a Democratic primary, not a party election where people are just going to go in and pull the lever for their party. Uh, so there's there's a lot of opportunity for these voters to change their mind even now. And the candidates, of course, are out in force right now. This is probably the most active time we're going to see in the primary leading right up to New Hampshire, especially if we're just talking about New Hampshire. So we have, you know, a complete deluge of all of the um, all of the campaigns are up there. All their surrogates are out there. Both Castro twins are out there stumping for Warren in New Hampshire. So, I mean, if there's a time for the candidates to try and start, as Sanders is doing, scraping away at points here or there, or even pushing for some kind of big jump up the polls, like this is their moment. Yeah. And because this one, this poll that we did echoes a CNN poll that came out earlier, I think you'll see more attention from other candidates being focused on Bernie Sanders now. You know, there's this tendency of the candidates to train their fire on whoever's leading and trying to grab some votes back from them. Um, The other thing that's going to happen between now and when New Hampshire actually takes place is, of course, the Iowa caucuses. Um, That's right. Right. So, you know, whoever wins those and whoever comes in way in the back, that can make numbers in New Hampshire change a lot, even in the last week. So I wouldn't call this poll predictive. I'd call it like many people often do, a snapshot of where things are right now. And the other thing that you folks were polling is, I mean, it's happening right now in the Senate. We're discussing impeachment. That's happening. How do people feel about it? Right. So on impeachment, not surprisingly, I think Democratic voters are pretty unified on it. They both think that he is guilty of the two articles that were sent forth by the Democrats. About 9 in 10 say guilty, only about 10% in each case say not guilty. But 
if you kind of look back to how this has unfolded, longtime listeners of the pod will recall that Democrats haven't actually always been unified on this. You know, looking back before the investigation was announced, throughout the, the hearings and so forth, support was growing. So to see now that Democrats are pretty sold both on his guilt and then even the idea that he should be removed. That was always an interesting split to me, that even if you had a majority saying that he should be impeached, you had way, way, way fewer people saying that should then lead to removal, which has always been a little odd to me because the implication you assume is that if you think a president should be impeached, then you think they should be removed. But that's not always how it works. Yeah, there's this slice that thought he should be charged with something and then and found then, guilty. I, I would love them to be in charge if I'm ever prosecuted for something. <laughs> that would be amazing. So so about 8 in 10 say, yes, he should be removed, 8 in 10 of Democratic primary voters. You know, Democrats are united on this, and it, it puts it puts the candidates in, in an interesting spot where they're being thrust into the middle of these proceedings, both literally in the sense that the senators are stuck in their seats on pain of imprisonment, and figuratively in the sense that their voters, the voters that they're trying to appeal to, largely think that he should be removed. Yeah. Well, Steve, aside from uh, impeachment and horse racing, what are we doing here today? Ah, uh, yes. The perennial question, why are we here? Why are we alive? What is time? We're recording on a Wednesday. You're hearing this on Thursday. It's fine. We may be confused, but at least we know what day of the week is sometimes. Yes. And we are here today on Recording Day to talk to Katie Lynn and our very good friend about Budget Day and also about Charlie Baker's State of the Commonwealth address that he gave yesterday where he laid out his own priorities. And then later on, we're going to have Rebecca Hart Holder of NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts to talk about the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the unfolding legal environment surrounding access to abortion in Massachusetts. All right. Let's head over to the State House, Steve. Last night, Governor Charlie Baker delivered his annual State of the Commonwealth address. He talked about issues ranging from climate change to education, transportation to housing. While the governor's readying his policy agenda and pledging more money for some of his priorities, it also looks like the state may be facing a budget cycle that looks very different from the last two. To find out what's up, we are in the heart of the chaos right now. Here at the State House to talk with our very busy BFF for the pod, Katie Landon of State House News Service. Katie, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for coming to hunt me down amid the chaos. So we often meet in the pod bunker down the street, but today we're here in the State House. What's going on that we couldn't pull you away from? It's budget day, which for the news service and for State House reporters in general is basically the Super Bowl. The governor will be shortly rolling out his uh, his plan for fiscal 2021, and that'll start the next several months of budget deliberations and debate and negotiation. And uh, last night was the State of the Commonwealth address where the governor laid out his priorities. But before he could get started, there was some sort of delay because a door was locked, if we understand correctly. I, um, I, I missed the locked door, door gate of 2020, um, but there was a lot of pomp and circumstance as well that always kind of slows the process down. And so on the actual budget of it, we're going to get into this report dealing with the projected deficit that the state might be facing. But before then, have you learned anything today that the people might want to know about their budget? The, the big thing that we're looking for um, from the governor is he, they're filing a $44.6 billion budget today that's got roughly a 2.3% growth, which is 
a slower budget growth than we've seen in the past. They're, the administration and the legislature is projecting a growth of less than 3%, which is, you know, when you're talking billions of dollars, a lot of money, but it's, it's way slower, way below what we've been seeing the past few years. So the governor rolled out his budget today, and there are, it sounds like, more conservative estimates coming out of the legislature, but there's another estimate out there. We heard this week from the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation saying they think growth might growth and revenue might be even slower. How how do they sort of, how do they make the determination uh, which revenue estimates to follow and what are the impacts of, of those differing estimates? So there's a an annual hearing every December, the consensus revenue hearing, where the, the state budget writers hear from all sorts of economists and experts about what the, the following year might look like. And Mass Taxpayers Foundation is one of the groups that's invited to testify that. We've we've asked um, the administration's budget chief, Secretary Mike Heffernan, if if he's concerned about that projected gap that they have. And his response has been pretty much that they're they're one of the estimates that the administration uses, but they're not kind of the be-all and end-all. They have some different projections, and, and he's feeling pretty confident about what the administration has projected. They're imagining there'll be money left over at the end of the year to deposit into the state's rainy day fund, bringing that up even more beyond a, a balance that's already topping $3 billion. And so let's talk really quickly about what that actual deficit might look like. The projection was that there could be a $900 million shortfall. In part, they're saying there's going to be a slower amount of tax revenue growth than they expected or wanted and an increase in expenditures. So how is this actually shaking out? So what we have from the administration right now is a budget that that still boosts spending. You know, we've got a new $350 million um, in spending called for under the school funding reform law that was passed um, just last fall. And, you know, we we have seen, not in the past couple years, but if you go back three or four years, there have been times that the administration has had to make mid-year spending cuts that, that could be something to watch for down the, the horizon. But as of right now, the state budget plan from the administration involves spending growth. Okay, let's talk about what's in the budget itself. Uh, you're holding a budget document, which doesn't come out for another, according to my watch, 22 minutes. So you know something that none of us know. What unusual things, what interesting things, what new things are in the budget, and what's kind of going to be familiar to people? Yeah, I, um, I do know some stuff that probably more people will know by the time this is recorded. Um, the administration is proposing to increase the fee on um, Uber and Lyft rides, and that would some of that money would f- go to the T. Um, there's also proposals in here to kind of develop the successor to the Fiscal and Management Control Board that oversees the T. There's a, an attempt to get some new money through changing the way sales tax is collected by mass retailers, kind of streamlining and modernizing that to reflect the p- fact that more transactions are paid for with credit cards. And that would be kind of a one-time revenue boost for the state. Interesting uh, that there's an increase in Uber fees potentially coming because Massachusetts has very low per-ride Uber fees and they don't vary at all no matter where and when you want to ride, which is different than it is in many other states. What are the specifics of what the Baker administration is proposing on Uber and Lyft fees? So the governor's plan would bump that fee up from its current 20 cents per ride to a dollar per ride with 70 cents of that dollar going to the state, 30% going back to the, the municipalities, which I believe get 10 cent under the current model and of course 
that's um, that's also something to watch for as the house eventually um, takes up its own transportation uh, finance plan. There's been talks about that there. They could go more aggressive. They could agree with the governor, and we'll, we'll see what happens. And so how is it that the state, in, in your view, and as you watch all of this kind of unfold, how is the state responding to this projected deficit? Are they changing any of their um, plans at all, or are they just kind of saying, these are the things that we want, so we're going to figure out how much they cost, put them in the budget, and then deal with revenue later? What are we watching for as far as the deficit and these plans? I think we're seeing a, a pretty modest plan here. There's not a other than what's required under the the education funding law and you know there are new pension contributions from the state other than those big pictures items and some money for the t we're seeing not a lot of new spending among the state's departments and certainly we'll continue to hear from advocates who say that the state needs more revenue to fund you know any number of priorities whether it be the environment or affordable housing programs. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing from some of those people shortly. Well, the pension thing uh, alone was an increase of, what was it, 9% now? So oh, year over year, it's been about 30% increase uh, over the last three years. What's the impact right now of this kind of increasing amount of expense on, this, on the pensions? Yeah, well, that that takes a, a big chunk of the of the available money that the state has to play with. You take that, you take another three hundred million in in education, and you're left with not. I don't want to quite say crumbs because again, we're talking over billions of dollars, but not a lot of money to go around to everything else in the the vast expanse of state government. All right. Well, Katie Lannon of the State House News Service, thank you for taking a second among all of the chaos. Uh, we're going to send you back to Budget Day and have fun reporting on it as you have more time to poke through. Yeah, looking forward to diving into those cherry sheets. <laughs> Today marks the 47th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. Earlier this month, 207 members of Congress submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court, asking the court to consider overturning the ruling and pushing authority to individual states to make their own rules. Meanwhile, here in Massachusetts, a report is soon expected for the state's legislature's Judiciary Committee on a bill known as the Roe Act, which calls for expanded abortion rights in Massachusetts. So here to talk about the reproductive rights landscape in our home state and also on the national stage is Rebecca Hartholder of NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts. Rebecca, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So the specific case in dispute right now is June Medical Services, LLC versus Gee. So what is it and what does it have to do with us in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's a really interesting case that's going to be heard by the Supreme Court on March 3rd of this year. So in 2015, the case, uh, the Supreme Court found that a Texas law that mandated that abortion providers had admitting privileges at local hospitals uh, was unconstitutional and was an undue burden um, on the right to privacy. June Medical is a similar case uh, challenging a law out of Louisiana that is exactly the same law as the law that was struck down uh, in Texas. So for the non-legal minds, <laughs> raising my own hand here in the room, um, why, is, why does this merit any consideration if the Supreme Court's already decided this, yeah. this issue? Great question, because Justice Kavanaugh is on the court. I mean, that's the major difference that we see. Um, this case uh, should have been rejected. The district court um, in the Fifth Circuit found that the Louisiana law was unconstitutional under whole women's health. There's really no reason that the Supreme Court would be hearing this case, except for the fact that the composition of the court has changed. So 
So what are our members of Congress arguing in the amicus brief? So essentially, um, our members of Congress are saying that, uh, you know, quite simply, this law is an undue burden on the right to privacy. It's already been held unconstitutional by the high court uh, several years ago, and they shouldn't really even be hearing the case. On the other hand, anti-choice legislators are saying, nope, it's not an undue burden. It doesn't matter that Louisiana would go down to one abortion provider. Women can still have access to care, and so the court should hear it and reverse whole women's health. So looking at that then in in terms of what it would mean here in Massachusetts, should this case be decided uh, in favor of the plaintiffs, what impact would that have here in Massachusetts? Well, we're lucky that it won't have much impact here in Massachusetts. So we have a legislature that is overwhelmingly pro-choice, and we don't hear um, anti-choice bills that pose a significant threat to um, impeding access to abortion care. What it means nationwide is that in states where there is an anti-choice majority, um, it will be kind of open season on passing anti-choice laws. So what is this actually going to have as far as an impact on your work uh, as we're moving into this era with Kavanaugh on the court as well? How is that impacting the kinds of legislation that you're advocating for and your sort of day-to-day process? You know, when uh, President Trump was elected, one of the things that we were most concerned about was that he would have a vacancy on the high court and he would be able to change the composition of the court to an anti-choice court. I think it's a bad harbinger for reproductive rights that the court is hearing this case. Um, So... What it means in Massachusetts is that it's an opportunity for us to really lead. What it means is it's an opportunity for us to push back against a national narrative that is really constraining access to reproductive health care and make the opposite statement here in Massachusetts that we support a woman's right to choose. So then let's talk about the specifics of the Roe Act, because that's one of the pieces of legislation that would take aim at the exact issue that you just that you just outlined. What exactly does the Roe Act do and what uh, gaps or holes is it trying to fill? Yes, yeah, so you can think of it as really doing three main things. The first is that it codifies uh, the right to privacy in Massachusetts law. It's protected at the level of the SJC, but it's not in the Mass General Laws. Um, The other thing that it does is that it ensures um, equitable access to reproductive health care regardless of age, race, insurance status um, by repealing politically motivated barriers to care. And the third thing is that it creates an exception in our law for um, abortion later in pregnancy when a family is facing a devastating diagnosis of a lethal fetal anomaly. And so how does this interact with the broader national discussion here? Are you hoping that this acts as a model uh, for other states to follow along with? Or is it really sort of about securing those rights in Massachusetts? It's both. It's really both. Um, If you look at Massachusetts right now, we get about a C grade for um, access to abortion because we do have barriers to care. So what we're really looking to do with the Roe Act is both um, remove those barriers from our laws and expand access here in Massachusetts, but also to make a real national statement and put Massachusetts among the states that are really leading the charge to protect protect access to care. And some of the highest hurdles typically in these discussions are lowering the age, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that that you mentioned, and also uh, moving further into the pregnancy. So um, take those, I guess, take those in either order that you prefer. What what are people who would pose those arguments missing? um, And how should legislators be thinking about those in your opinion? Yeah. So um, 
let me say to start off with, what we're trying to do is create a more equitable and just healthcare system for people that are accessing reproductive health care. So I'll take um, access for young people first. So right now the law is that um, a young person under the age of 18 has to get one parent's consent to abortion care or get what's called a judicial bypass, essentially getting permission from a judge. We know that 77% of teens in Massachusetts involve a parent when they are facing an unintended pregnancy and elect abortion care. For the remaining 23%, going before a judge is an absolutely incredible hurdle and barrier to care. We think that care should be in the exam room and not in the courtroom. Clinicians are trained to spot abuse and coercion. They're mandated reporters. Judges are not. Um, the other issue you know, besides the kind of logistical hurdles of getting um, to a courthouse for a teen is that it's disproportionately impacting teens from low-income families and also teens of color. And that is just simply an untenable outcome for us. Um, you know, the legislature can't legislate family communication. It would be great if they could, but there are cases where there are there's abuse, there's rape, there's incest, there's the threat of being thrown out, where it's just simply not safe to talk to your parent. And then um, young people in DCF custody don't have a parent that they can speak to and have to go through the court system. So the disproportionate impact is just simply untenable for us. That's the first part. The second part is that right now Massachusetts has a law that does not allow abortion care after 24 weeks of pregnancy except to protect the life or health of the pregnant person. There are families with wanted pregnancies who get absolutely devastating diagnoses of a lethal anomaly. Um, either right before the 24 week cutoff or shortly thereafter. Those families make a range of decisions. Those are very complicated, complex, personal, medical decisions that families enter into, and sometimes the right choice is for them to carry that pregnancy to term. Um, and of course, we honor that. And sometimes the right choice is to access abortion care, but they can't get that care here in Massachusetts. So they're forced to fly across the country, either to Colorado or New Mexico, um, at a cost of tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket take time off from work, away from their family, away from their support system, away from the communities, the religious community that they might be relying on. And, and you know, when we live in a state with some of the best health care in the world, we think that's unacceptable. We think that people should be able to stay with their doctor and with their providers here in Massachusetts in their homes. And so one of the things that you brought up, obviously, is that the state itself is kind of middling when it comes to protections for abortion access and reproductive care. Can you talk a little bit about what the process has been like pushing for that. Mm -hmm. uh, we obviously live in a fairly liberal state. Why has it been a tough sell at times? Yeah. Last legislative session, the um, the state house made huge advances in protecting reproductive freedom. We passed five um, reproductive freedom bills, and the governor signed them. Um, and I think that was a really important step forward for the Commonwealth. I think we all see or saw um, after Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed to the high court the kind of existential threat that he poses to um, reproductive health care. 
even though it will be protected here, people are still scared and they're still starting to think about uh, what those barriers are and how they disproportionately impact some communities. And so, um, you know, for us, 2019 was a real building year. We've created a huge coalition. We've done a ton of education. Um, legislators have been incredibly receptive to a lot of hard conversations about access to care. And we really saw 2019 as the year that we made the case and we grew the movement. And we see 2020 as the year we get the touchdown. All right. Well, Rebecca Hartholder of NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to our favorite section every week, trivia. Last week, our question was, now that the new crop of municipal officials has been sworn in and they're getting active across the state, we have to ask, who was the youngest person ever elected to the Boston City Council? And the answer is Larry DeCara was elected at age 22 in 1972. That's quite young to be a Boston City Councilor. Younger than me. I'm feeling very unaccomplished right now. <laughs> Eventually you get to the point where presidential candidates start to be younger than you and then it's depressing, just speaking from experience. Anyhow, continuing then with municipal matters, the question is, according to a very, very old city law here in Massachusetts, if you are to cross Boston Common, what item must you carry with you at night and why? Any, any bonus trivia points this week available for that? No, but... Yikes, don't do it. <laughs> yes, don't do this. Do not follow the law on <laughs> this because you'll get this. into other problems. I think I that's the you. thing. We need to make it very clear to you, our beloved listeners, that if you know what you're supposed to do, slash carry, don't, don't do, do it. Don't do it. Do not do this. <laughs> anyway, that's all the time we have this week. So thank you all for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, leave us reviews so other people can find us. And if you have any polling needs, give us a call here at the Massing Polling Group. Until next time, I'm Steve Cazella here with Jen Smith. Our producer is the one and only Libby Gormley. And thank you all for listening.